More Drabblecast relaunch, prelaunch, kickassery coming your way this week as we listen to Tim Pratt's tragic, sad, and beautifully poignant time traveling story, Morris and the Machine. Then listen in part two as I get together with Tim himself to listen through and talk about the story, about theories on time travel, about writing good villains, and about finding meaning and fulfillment in life. Stick around for the end, where Tim reads a poem of his that he wrote for his wife on Valentine's Day. You won't want to miss, on this week's Drabblecast Director's Cut Special, Morris and the Machine, by Tim Pratt. get going with our show this week, folks. You might be like, dang, Drabblecast is cranking out like two special episodes a week here at least. What's the special occasion? Well, if you missed our short Metacast episode a few weeks back in June, you'll have missed the big news. Drabblecast is coming back in a big way. For the past ten years or so, I've brought you this podcast, along with an awesome and dedicated team of volunteers, basically as a side project after work, on weekends, and the wee hours of the night. And that mess. I quit my job because I want to bring you folks even more boatloads of fun, different, top-notch stories and content for a living. Hopefully you're keen on the idea too, because (laughs) kind of need your help to make that happen. We're doing a big Kickstarter in the fall to set us up for a big relaunch. And until then, you're going to get cool stuff like this week's episode as part of our relaunch pre-launch campaign. What can you do to help? Well, you can go to Drabblecast.org and sign up for our mailing list there, so we can keep you in the loop with everything coming up. As well as follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Drabblecast. You can tell a friend, or ten friends, or write us a review, or blog about us. These next few months will continue to be great months to get your buddies hooked on the weird, as we're doing lots of best ofs, highlights, and compilations, as well as original stuff. And lastly, of course, you can donate right there off our website by clicking on the donate button at the top of the page. Every little bit helps grease the wheels and push the momentum forward, and we appreciate your support. All right, then, let's get on with the show. To skip directly to part two of this episode, you're going to want to hit forward on your chapters or fast forward to about minute 2525. Originally airing as episode 150 in February 2010, we bring you Morris and the Machine. By Tim Pratt. Penelope, once my pretty penny, my penny for your thoughts, now my penny dreadful, my penny pincher, sat waiting for me in the kitchen. She dragged the battered kitchen table across the floor so it blocked the way to my workshop, and she sat at the table, the back of her chair pressed against the basement door. There was no getting past her. I thought about turning, walking back out, trying to crawl into the basement through one of the little windows at ground level, but even if I could squeeze my way in, it would just delay the inevitable. Penny had changed a lot over the years, but she was still persistent. I put the little bag of solder and washers down by the sink and turned to face Penny with a forced smile. Hi, darling. I said. How was work? She didn't answer. A cigarette burned in her right hand, and she tapped the fingernail of her left hand on a pile of ripped open envelopes. Her eyes, even narrowed, were still the deep blue of Pacific waters seen undersea beyond the reefs. But where once those eyes had made me think of limitless possibilities, now they made me think of sharks. I've been thinking about leaving you, Morris. Penny said, her once melodious voice roughened by years of smoke and alcohol. Penny insists she doesn't have a drinking problem. She has a husband problem, and drinking is one form of treatment. She'd been a wild, impulsive girl once, who drank for fun, but over the years the fun had decreased while the drinking hadn't. Penny, I began, because I knew what at least one of those envelopes was and talking my way out of this would be hard. Do you know why I've been thinking about leaving you? 
Her fingernail tapping became louder and more insistent, as did the rustle of envelopes. After all, things were getting better. I got promoted at work. I even managed to pay down the worst of the credit cards. Another two months, and it would have been paid off entirely. She threw a ripped-open envelope across the table. Then that bill came. A dozen charges for hundreds of dollars each. We're almost maxed out again. I sat down across from her. No getting past this, either. I didn't touch the envelope. I knew what the charges were. To the industrial machine shop. To Hammond's Electronics. To a bunch of other stupid equipment suppliers. You decided to throw our future away into that pile of junk in the basement. Ten years we've been married, Morris. And you've gotten stupider every year. I used to think you were smart. She jammed her cigarette down in a cut glass engraved bowl. It was an award I'd won years before as most innovative at a convention for new inventors and entrepreneurs. Now it was Penny's favorite ashtray. You have to spend money to make money, Penny. And I'm on the verge. Really this time. It's going to be huge. But that's not why I'm thinking about leaving you. She interrupted, all calm. She rose and went to the counter, took down a glass and a bottle of gin one step up from industrial solvent. I had to turn around in my chair to keep my eyes on her. I love Penny, but I don't like turning my back on her. We can always declare bankruptcy, so who cares if our credit gets ruined for seven years and we lose the shithole fixer-upper you never bothered to fix up, except for your precious basement. She dug into the freezer for a couple of ice cubes, swirled them in her drink. Your basement. She spat. With your lock on the door. The lock was an old point of contention, and my response was as well-worn as the path I took each day down the steps to my machine. The lock is for your own safety. Some of my experiments are dangerous, and if you came down there without the proper protection, you might... The lock... She said, loud enough to cut me off. I tried to remember the last time Penny had let me finish a sentence. Maybe five years before... Maybe seven? The lock is sort of why I'm thinking about leaving you. She stalked toward me, drink in hand, and I stood up, edging around the table to the far side, closer to the basement door. I wanted to keep the table between us. I know you're down there in that basement all day while I'm at work. I know because the house smells like burning rubber and hot solder every night. And you say you have so much work to do on your machine that you scamper down there after dinner every night too. Lock your door and work on the mystery machine, right, Morris? The one that's going to change everything and make us rich, right? That machine? Her right eye was twitching the way it did when she got furious. But last night, when I got this credit card bill, I was so pissed that I started banging on your door. And when I tried the door, it was unlocked. Somebody forgot his safety measures, huh, Morris? So I went down there, but you were nowhere to be seen. What do you do? Crawl out the window? Too chicken shit to leave by the front door? She slammed her glass down on the table. And do you think I haven't noticed you sneaking in late sometimes these past few months? You think I'm stupid, Morris? Uh, No, I, I... How to explain that? Sometimes I didn't make it back to the basement in time for transition, so I landed a few blocks from home and had to walk back. I'd done it for a long time without detection, but I'd become sloppy recently. I could see that now. I thought for the millionth time about telling Penny the truth about the machine, but I couldn't, not yet, because she'd want to go with me, and then she'd see and she'd know the same way she'd always knew when I'd been masturbating or had too many drinks, that sixth sense for my shame, and if she found out about the other... So let me tell you why I'm thinking about leaving you, Morris. Her eyes were bright and focused her voice low and serious. I'm going to leave you, because I think... I kicked the chair aside, wrenched open the basement door, slipped inside, pulled the door closed after me, and shot the bolt. I could barely hear Penny shouting on the other side. The basement was impressively soundproofed. I'd made a little money early on from selling a patent for a device that improved energy efficiency in certain coolant systems, enough to buy this house and make a fine workshop before the money ran out. I'd always assumed there'd be more patents, more inventions, money streaming in forever. 
But then I discovered the principle behind the machine, and my every dollar, thought, and hour since then had gone into its development. A time machine. Every basement tinkerer's impossible dream, but I'd done it. It just didn't work the way I'd expected, and I wasn't using it the way I'd expected either. I switched on the lights and went down the stairs to my workshop, past the scarred wooden workbenches festooned with clamps, past the walls hung with fine tools, to the far end of the long room, which was dominated by the machine and piles of parts that had once been part of the machine and other parts that I was going to try adding to the machine in time. It wasn't like H.G. Wells's time machine, in more ways than one to my dismay. This was no vehicle. There was no seat, no steering wheel, nothing like that. It was as unimpressive as a breaker box, its only face a vast array of switches, cryptically marked in a way that only made sense to me, with wires and conduits snaking back to a complex array of equipment that filled the back wall. There were lots of dummy switches and false circuits meant to confuse anyone who stumbled upon the machine. Not that I was in much danger of industrial espionage. I was nobody. I hadn't filed for a patent in years. For the sake of secrecy, I'd refrained from producing a dozen ancillary inventions discovered during my work on the machine, some of which might have made me rich. A time machine would make me much more than merely rich, though. Once I perfected the machine, it would raise me as high as any man had ever been. I looked forward to seeing Penny's face then. But I didn't have the resources of a big lab or a staff, the budget of a government agency, so it was slow work. I could have sought help, but that would have meant giving up control of the machine, and I couldn't do that. I knew too many inventors who'd had their greatest creations stolen by unscrupulous companies, and this was simply too important. That was something Penny would never understand. She didn't have the long-term vision I did. But the machine... I pressed my hand against the cool metal. Perfection eluded me. In truth, even improvements eluded me. The machine did as much as it ever had, exactly as it had since I first got it working, all those years before, no matter how I adjusted it, no matter how much money I spent on new equipment or embellishments. Still, I kept trying. I'd made some alterations to the machine this morning, so maybe, maybe... I flipped the only switch that mattered. I regret to say I did not fall down a tunnel of phantasmagoric lights with the sound of ticking clocks as accompaniment, and no calendar pages flew past my face. The transition is not cinematic. The machine hums, everything lurches, I blink, or darkness engulfs me, or the environment briefly shifts to one that my senses cannot interpret, I've never been sure. And then I am in the basement still. But it is all dust now, an unused basement in an empty house. Afternoon light comes in the high windows, which in the future, my future, are painted black. And it is the same light every time, no matter what time of day I activate the machine on my end. My heart sank a little. I'd hoped, this time, with these changes, that I'd go somewhere else, some when else. But I was here... And now, again, might as well get on with it then. Sometimes I get nosebleed. I still don't know why. But when I rubbed my hand against my nostrils this time, it came away clean. I went up the steps, through an empty kitchen, and out the back door into an overgrown, fenced-in yard. It was a beautiful spring day, full of promise. But they were the same old promises. I didn't worry about meeting anyone. I'd been this way often enough to know which pathways were safe. The first couple of times had been disorienting, but once I'd figured out when I was, I'd quickly taken the next logical step to find out where Penny was. All it took was calling her parents from a payphone. My voice hadn't changed that much, and they couldn't tell me from the future from me from their present. They'd gladly told me that Penny had gone for a walk and said she was going to the park, and that's where I'd found her, and kept on finding her, every time I used the machine. I set off for the park, as always, 
I didn't worry about meeting myself. My 17-year-old counterpart was off visiting relatives a hundred miles away. I walked briskly, just five or six blocks through the run-down residential neighborhood that was half-gentrified by the time Penny and I moved in. The park was much the same in the past and future, just a patch of green bordered by bushes, a few benches on the grass. I stood by the bushes, where I always did, and watched my Penny, my pretty Penny, at seventeen, sitting on the bench with a book open in her lap. Her head was bowed, a wisp of hair pulling free from the back of her head to sway in the breeze. Not everything was the same every time I came back, and that had been my first sad hint that I'd discovered Sterling Shenarian time travel instead of Wellsian time travel. Oh, on the macro level, everything was identical each time. The cars that passed by on the street, the people strolling past, Penny on the bench, but little things shifted. The flies buzzing around me were erratic. The breezes that blew differed a little each time, and the fat, fluffy clouds overhead dissolved and drifted differently each time I came to the past. If I were truly traveling into my own past, those tiny details would have been the same every time, as unchanged as any other component of history. But this was not truly my past. At least, not in any way that touched my future. No matter what I did here, the future I returned to would be unaltered, connected to a past I'd never visited, a past I'd only lived through as anyone did. I approached the bench from behind. Penny, I said, letting her hear my voice before she saw me, because I'd learned that that was the easiest way. Morris? I thought you were going... She trailed off as I stepped around the bench, into her vision, close enough to see that I was no seventeen-year-old. I wasn't too different. A little more weight around the midsection, a few more lines on my face, but I was still recognizably me. Penny Whistle, I said. It was an endearment I'd used back then, and saying it seemed to make what came next easier, at least for her. Yeah, it's me. I came back from the future. I already had the wedding photo in my hand, and before she could object or express disbelief, I held the photo out, and she took it, as she nearly always did. Penny stared at the photo, herself in a white fantasia of a gown that no one had known was secondhand. Myself as dashing as I'd ever been in a rented tuxedo. I sat on the bench at the end away from her, plenty of space between us. Sometimes she spooked and ran away, but not this time. Whether she ran or not seemed to depend on how close I came to her physically in these first moments. It was, it's going to be a beautiful wedding. No need to mention her drunk uncle vomiting behind the cake table. This moment needed to be magical. You were, you will be, radiant. She looked up, her eyes narrowed, a look I would come to know well in later years. I don't believe... Look on the back of the picture, I said. And with a suspicious glare, she turned the photo over and gasped. Seeing the date on the photo written in blue ink in her own spidery handwriting, never failed to convince her. She'd run away a dozen times before I figured out that approach. Morris, it's really you? Penny, I built a time machine. It took me years of work, but I did it, and now I'm back. I spread my hands. I want to tell you some things. I took a slip of paper from my pocket. These are the names of some companies I want you to buy stock in. You don't have to tell Morris you're doing it. Just use the money you get for graduation. It won't take much, and these will make you a lot of money. Your uncle can tell you how to go about buying shares. There are going to be some hard times ahead for you and Morris. You and me. And the money you make from this will help. Just don't stop believing in me. I will accomplish great things. I smiled as reassuringly as possible. I'm here, aren't I? She did believe me. Now, and when she took the paper, she touched my cheek with her other hand. I've never doubted you, Morris. I always knew you were a genius. But won't this change things? Change the past? I mean, the future? 
Isn't it dangerous, you coming here and giving me this information? I didn't laugh. It would have sounded too bitter. If I'd discovered Wellesian time travel, with time as one uniform line, I'd be in danger of changing my own future by meddling with the past. <laughs> danger. I'd be in the wonderful position of being able to alter my own miserable timeline. But this was Sterling Shenarian time travel instead. The past was another country, time a garden of infinitely forking paths. I could change this path, but when I returned home, my world would always be the same. Maybe someday that would change if I could fix the machine. But for now, I did what I could and took the comfort it gave me and seized what happiness I could. No danger, I said. I've worked everything out, checked all the calculations. It'll all be fine, don't worry. And be patient. There will be rough times ahead, even with the extra money. But believe in me, and someday things will be wonderful. I put my hand on her knee. This part could go either way. I knew it was whim for her, and sometimes she patted my hand and thanked me and kissed my cheek, and that was all. But this time, like she did about half the time, she leaned in, and I turned my head to hers, and we kissed. I smelled her, her hair, her skin, the intrinsic scent of her. Even when I slept beside Penny in the future, this smell was lost to me, obscured by the cigarettes she smoked. We kissed, and her mouth held no taste of ashes. Tears welled up in my eyes, but I didn't cry. Sometimes I did, but not this time. We could go to our place, Penny said and there was a mischievous glint in her eyes, a delicious sense of her own naughtiness, and I didn't say no. I would never say no. This was my penny, after all, even if only a long time ago and in a slightly different world. She led me just a few blocks to another empty house where we'd sometimes slipped away as teenagers for precious time alone. We went through a broken window to an interior room where we had candles, a scrounged mattress, and a bottle of vodka hidden under a loose floorboard. Our teenaged earthly paradise. Morris, she murmured. It's not wrong since it's you. I know it. And she pulled me down with her to the mattress. Beneath the peeling wallpaper in an abandoned house in a past not quite my own, I made love again to my penny, as I had so many times before. After, later, when I'd held her and smelled her hair and whispered promises to her about how good her life would be, I said I had to go. The machine will be calling me back soon. She propped herself up on one elbow, disarrayed and unselfconscious, and said, I don't think I'll tell you. The, the young you, my you, about this. He might not believe me, and anyway, it'll make a nicer surprise when he gets the time machine working. I nodded. On the occasions when we made love, Penny from the past usually said something similar. It appealed to her love for secrets. I kissed her goodbye and set out walking in the evening toward the empty basement I would someday make my lab. Maybe I'd given this Penny and that Morris a chance at a better life. I tried. Each time I tried. I couldn't kill Hitler in his cradle, couldn't witness the crucifixion, couldn't even corner the tulip market in the Netherlands in the 17th century. But I did what I could. I'd never know if I succeeded. Once I'd visited one iteration of the past, it seemed closed to me forever, and I never returned to the same place twice. I didn't know if there were an infinite number of possible pasts to visit or not. Maybe someday I'd find out. And honestly, whether this Penny and that Morris had a better life or not, at least I'd tasted remembered sweetness and learned once again that my nostalgia was not misplaced. Penny really was the great love of my life, just not the great love of my present. I made it back to the basement in time, and when I shifted with an inner lurch back to my own time, I sat for a while, listening to the ticking clock hung over my workbench. 
Finally, when it was late enough that I thought Penny would be asleep, late enough to privately shower the smell of the younger Penny off myself, I went upstairs. Penny still sat at the kitchen table, smoking perhaps her twentieth cigarette of the night. She exhaled a stream of smoke and said, as if our earlier argument had never been interrupted, as if I'd never fled. I'm thinking about leaving you, Morris, because I think you're cheating on me. And truly, what answer could I give to that? I'm here with author Tim Pratt, uh, heavily featured on the Drabblecast. Folks seem to love this guy's work, and for good reason. Tim's an American science fiction and fantasy writer, born uh, in December. His short fiction's been nominated for the Nebula Award and the World Fantasy Award, and his story Impossible Dreams won the Hugo in 2007. As T.A. Pratt, he has published four urban fantasy novels about sorceress Marla Mason. They're called Blood Engines, Poison Sleep, Dead Rain, and Spell Games, and I love them. They're all from Bantam Spectra. And as Tim Pratt, he's the author of the idiosyncratic fantasy novel The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl, which is also from Banta. Tim, uh, well, you used to live in Oakland. I guess you don't anymore, do you? I'm in Berkeley these days. Berkeley. Okay. And you're, you're an editor there of, of Locust still? Yep. That's fantastic. Well, how are you doing, Tim? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, the sort of new stuff that I'm doing lately is a space opera series. Um, the first book was called The Wrong Stars. It came out last November and uh, lost to Philip K. Dick Award earlier this year. So mm-hmm. that was a loss to Carrie Vaughn, which I'm happy to lose to Carrie. She's great. And uh, the second book, The Dreaming Stars, is coming out in September, and then there will be a third book next year, The Forbidden Stars, and then maybe there will be more after that, but Angry Robot is the publisher. They bought three to start with, so mm. that's that's kind of the current project, and I just turned in The Dreaming Stars, finished my copy edits and proofreading uh, earlier this, well, last month in June, actually. So Cool. Is this your first go at space opera? Yeah, yeah. The first one, The Wrong Stars, was, you know, I love it. I've been reading it my whole life. I'm you know, a huge uh, Ian Banks fan and Lois McMaster Bujold and mm-hmm. uh, John Harrison. I like his bizarre space opera stuff too. Um, so I've always liked it. And I kind of had, had this block about writing science fiction, like with spaceships and stellar distances and orbital velocities and stuff like that, because I felt like, oh, my science isn't there. My math's not there. But I finally decided I could do something that was, you know, perhaps a bit more rigorous than Star Wars, but it doesn't necessarily have to be profoundly heavily hard SF. So I, uh, I kept the focus on the fun and, uh, you know, there's a, there's an attempt to be somewhat plausible, but then halfway through the book, there's incomprehensible alien technology that works in ways that none of the human characters even understand. So effectively at that point, I can, uh, I can stop worrying quite so much about orbital velocities. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to get all Asimov foundation series on it, you know, <laughs> just insanely yeah, science. I think, you know, I, I respect science fiction like that a lot. I respect hard SF. Um, and I know just enough to know how little I know, which was uh, a block for me for a while, but I finally decided, oh, you know, I'll just tell a story about people, you know, and I will do all the cool stuff that the solar system setting gives me and not let myself be worried if I, you know, if it's not perfect. Besides, this is science fiction. If I mess up something in the science, I will get letters. It'll be fine. <laughs> will happily correct me. Yeah, you won't be lonely. You'll get all sorts of fun mail. Well, we've, uh, the last couple stories we've done with these uh, author commentary pieces have been uh, pretty heady stories. We had a dark horror piece, and uh, last week we had just a really mind-blowing story that had all philosophical implications. I really wanted to do something that um, was, you know, pared down and more more kind of standard in a sense, but uh, melancholy and more uh, just emotionally based, and this story really jumped out to me, Morris and the Machine, because it had such a um, phenomenal uh, audience reaction. People really were moved by it and had strong opinions about the main character and, you know, time travel in general. And, like, and I guess just like you're saying, uh, you don't dive too much in this into the specifics of time travel. And good on you for that, because that can get pretty crazy. <laughs> but you tend to focus on the characters in, in all of your writing and 
um, and also in pacing. And I think that that's something that is, it really stands out here. And I've, I've told you that before, your sense of timing and development throughout a short story is just usually spot on and really makes it go the extra mile. Um, but where did this story kind of come from, Horse in the Machine? Well, so there's, um, uh, like many writers, I'll, I'll read things and they'll spark thoughts and, you know, I'll go off on some tangent that the writer who wrote the story didn't go into, you know. Um, and in this particular case, I remember the story, uh, I got the idea while I was reading an Orson Scott Card story called Prior Restraint that's uh, one of his older stories. Um, basically, it's about this, uh, the narrator is a guy who wants to be a writer and he's in a writing group with this older man who's an amazing writer, but he never finishes anything. And so he gets to know this this other writer and sort of asks him why he never finishes anything. And there's a whole time travel explanation, right, that involves time travelers who are trying to correct stuff that happened in the past. Um, so, you know, time travel is on my mind. But what one of the things that uh, the story does is you hear about some of the stories that the older guy didn't finish, right, some of his little fragments. Mm. And one of the fragments is... Uh, it was an unfinished fragment of a story about a man who honestly thought his wife had left him, even though he went home to find her there every night. Hmm. And so just from that, I started thinking about, you know, marital dynamics. And because the story is about time travel, I got to thinking about time travel, marital dynamics and the strange things that could happen in a relationship if you could interact with past versions of, you know, your spouse or if you could interact with future versions of your spouse. And I, and I just, you know, started thinking about uh, how time travel could complicate a marriage, essentially. Um, and what I always try to do when I come up with a story that's idea first rather than character first, when I have to come up with the character, I just figure out who would suffer the most in this scenario, right? And then I tell the story about them. That's a good uh, little pointer. Yeah, and i'll have more to say about the story and why i think it sparks such a strong reaction and about morris and stuff as we start to listen to it <laughs> great awesome well let's dive in here we go this is uh Drabblecast 150 morris and the machine penelope once my pretty penny my penny for your thoughts now my penny dreadful, my penny pincher, sat waiting for me in the kitchen. She dragged the battered kitchen table across the floor so it blocked the, the way to my workshop. And she sat from the, the very beginning, the back uh -huh. of her chair pressed against with the, the way that Morris door. talks about his wife, there to no demonstrate that he is. I hope this is a podcast-friendly enough word. An asshole. <laughs> yeah, so you're on the same team I am here with Morris. He's got some sympathizers out there, believe it or not. But I know he does, yeah. And Penny had changed a lot of years. He's completely obsessed, completely self-interested, and poisoned by nostalgia. Right? Life turned out the way he wanted it to. And... He just lives in the past, and this is something that lots of people do. Morris just gets to do it literally pretty often. She didn't answer, and he doesn't think about the consequences of what he does. Right? He goes back to this moment of past and creates a new branch, a new timeline. And how messed up is it? Right? He essentially goes back and tries to to gaslight his wife. Right? Like to convince her. So you know. He's essentially trying to, like, do special tweeting to get her to put up with his bullshit in some other timeline. He's trying to help out other versions of himself. So, yes, I think Morris is not very nice. Science fiction fans, any, any writers uh, who try to write characters who are terrible jerks, there's going to be a certain amount of the fandom who is going to sympathize with them. Right? There are people who think Rick is the hero Rick and Morty. There are people who think Walter White is the hero in Breaking Bad. Right? While the drinking yeah. Would you say those are the Penny, jerk segment again, of the fandom? <laughs> I mean, I, sometimes it's just that they are seeing it on a level of power fantasies, right? And the thing is, those characters who behave that way, it's alluring, right? I mean, I love watching those characters. I just don't have any illusions that they're heroic or that they're right. I mean, one of the things about charismatic, brilliant jerks is that they're also charismatic and brilliant. Yeah. She threw so, some sympathy across for them, like, I understand, because when I was a little kid, I loved Darth Vader. Darth Vader is still cool, but, like... 
I, I know he's a villain. I know he's a bad guy. And some people miss that connection, right? And there's also a certain amount of confusion, I think, between a protagonist and a hero, right? Some people think that a protagonist is by definition a hero, and they're not. That's true. Some of my favorite stories are where the protagonist is, you know, anti-hero or just pure scum. Yeah, I mean, I read a ton of crime novels, and they're great. I love, you know, Donald um, Westlake stuff, uh, the Richard Stark novels that he wrote about the thief and killer Parker. They're great, and Parker's a fascinating protagonist. He's not a good guy. You root for him, because you're in his head, and you're seeing his world, and he does kind of have his own code. I mean, it's, it's fun to get in the mind of somebody like that. Sure. Um, yeah, that was the, the first story we bought from you. It was called Bonesai, and it was, that was very similar. I heard that on Pseudopod, and I was like, I gotta get that thing and, and spice it up with some, you know, with our touch, but very uh, awful person. that's... That's another story about someone who who has convinced himself that he's doing the right thing. I mean, in that case, he's he's genuinely disturbed, right? He's mentally ill, and he's or he has a true revelation from God. Um, it's deliberately ambiguous in the story, um, but yeah, no, I mean, characters who who are swirled them in her drink assured of their own rightness are characters that i like a lot um i, I often say that my favorite character treat in a protagonist is often wrong but never uncertain and my response you mentioned the marla mason novels there's actually 10 of those um i kept doing them after phantom ceased to exist wow and if you came down there but uh yeah i did them like through small press and kickstarter and stuff like that um and finished up the series actually last year but that character marla's whole thing is that she's often wrong but never uncertain i would say she is a hero who occasionally screws up like she really does mean well morris is just weak yeah and I stood up, edging around yeah, the Yeah, I love the in the episode part of this door. how the artist chose to focus to on the, the lock. I know it's you uh, it's a big thing. You get that line where she's obsessed kind of with that lock, where he's got it closed all day, that barrier between them. And it was insightful that they picked that as a symbolism because the lock is all over the place. It's not just the lock, it's the machine, it's the attitudes, it's the alcohol, all sorts of different locks. The one that's going to change everything. Yeah. Well, and Morris is ashamed, right? right? Like, he knows that what he's doing is not right. Like, deep her down, right he knows that this isn't good. Furious. You know, and that's why he wants to keep her out. Instead of trying to repair his relationship, instead of trying to deal with life as it is now, he just keeps going back. And he's created this narrative in his mind where he's making life better for an infinite possible, you know, versions of himself but he's not he's just living in the past and i mean to be crass enjoying having you know making out and having sex with his wife back when she was still much younger than he is now he's creepy he's definitely creepy you think i'm stupid morris no i i how to explain that sometimes i didn't make it back to the basement in time for transition so i landed a few blocks from home and had to walk back I'd done it for a long time without detection, but I'd become sloppy recently. I could see that now. I thought, for the millionth time, about telling Penny the truth about the machine. But I couldn't. Not yet. Because she'd want to go with me, and then she'd see, and she'd know, the same way she'd always knew when I'd been masturbating or had too many drinks. That's so masturbatory, isn't it? I mean, and if she found out what the whole thing is, right? Like, it is. It's like someone who's uh, who's jerking off to memories of the past, only he's actually going back and doing it. Yeah, it's true. Tools to the far end of the long room, which was dominated by the machine and piles of parts that had once been part of the machine, and other parts that I was going to try adding to the machine in time. It wasn't like H.G. Wells's time machine. In more ways than one. I love how you me. make the machine here, this by the no way. It, it almost gives us there a sense no that seat, any of us no could make this machine. Like, Nothing he cobbles like it together, you know? It was as unimpressive as a breaker box. Well, I love the it's tradition in science fiction of the beast of tinkerer and the backyard rocket ship. Like, to me. I grew up reading those kind of stories, you know? Um, Heinlein and uh, lots of the old classic stories are just about 
lot of thinkers. I mean, and that's how a lot of breakthroughs were made, right? I mean, before there were huge corporate R&D things, a lot of the breakthroughs and still are. A lot of the breakthroughs happen with somebody tinkering in their basement. Um, and I wrote this story before I saw the movie Primer, but when the movie Primer came out, I was like, yes, exactly. You know, somebody in their garage, in their basement, cobbling together a time machine and trying to figure out how it works and trial and erroring their way through it. Like, I didn't want it to be glamorous and sparkles and diodes, right? I wanted it to be very nitty-gritty um, and not a cool thing where you sit down and you pull a big lever um, because probably it wouldn't look like that. <laughs> I mean, for commercial use, sure, you might trick it out. <laughs> the Lexus model or something. Right. Add some fins and spoilers and bells and whistles that don't really do anything. But... And this was simply too important. That was something Penny would never understand. She didn't have the long-term vision I did. But the machine... I pressed my hand against the cool metal. Perfection eluded me. In truth, even improvements eluded me. The machine did as much as it ever had. Exactly as it had since I first got it working all those years before. I was going to ask you, no matter how, how much do you think he cares no about prestige and perfection? Like, this seems to become more masturbatory, and he seems to be okay with the flaws of the machine and its function. Is he really in this for the glory at all? Maybe. I mean, he's made a thing that would get him a Nobel Prize if he told anybody about it. I regret right? to say I did not fall but down a tunnel of fantastic he has become obsessed. Clocks as accompaniment. And no I, you know, he's not, a, he's not a healthy guy. And he, he refers to, you know, the fear that stuff's going to be stolen. I mean, I think his thing is it would be taken away from him. He likes this private thing that he goes down in the basement and he does all by himself and nobody else has it. Right? I mean, he's an obsessive hoarder of experience. Right, but it is and he comes up with these rationalizations, but really he likes that it's his thing. You know, he goes down in the dark, in the secret, and plus, you know, to talk about it would risk revealing what he does. Right? Yeah. Is he? Did he set this in motion to where it goes there, or is it pure chance that he's meeting Penny at a seventeen-year-old in different close proximity places and times? But I was here. No, I, I thought a little bit of beyond the borders of the story about whether the machine uh, works with the individual who's operating it, right? Like if it takes you back in your own timeline to a certain point or something like that. But probably not. <laughs> probably it's just a machine that, that goes back to this one particular date. It's true. I mean, Stephen Hawking or somebody could justify some sort of reason why it would be a fixed point every time. <laughs> you know, we don't need to bother ourselves with those details. On the macro level, everything was identical each time. The cars that passed by on the street, the people strolling past, Penny on the bench, but little things shifted. When you go back in time, it creates a different branch, right? It's not the same. It's not your past, right? Like, it causes it to diverge as soon as you go back and alter it. It becomes its own branch in the multiverse. So that's the Sterling Chanarian, where in Wellsian, you're actually traveling within your own timeline. Um, and I like, I like that distinction. John Kessel has written some great stories, too, about uh, going back in time and spawning new timelines. Uh, I think he calls them moment universes, um, and there's some some number of them in any given like second you can go back and exploit, you know, a certain number. I think it's like hundreds of different ones. Like, and he wrote a bunch of short stories, some like a cold, um, and some other ones that are set in that time travel universe. And it's great because you can go back and you can give machine guns to Jesus, and you know you can see what happens. You can just go back and mess with stuff. I feel like Our Jesus could just shoot straight-up fireballs out of his hands if he wanted to. <laughs> his whole thing was, like, he's not going to use his, like, demigod powers. And you're like, why? You're hanging on a cross. You know? But I love that um, Wellsian distinction because, you know, Wellsian time theory would be dangerous. And since this story is not operating within that one, he is, in fact, not helping himself at all, really, because he's helping other Morrises. And to get a little creepier, I guess, he's actually technically, there's a rape thing going on, you know, because that's not at all his wife, right? That's a different quantum universe. Yeah, and to him, they're not real, right? Or he's creating them, right? Like, he's giving them existence, and so he feels like it's his right to fuck with them as much as he wants to. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's gotta mess with Penny's head, 
right? Like, she seems down with it, but, like, she's a 17-year-old. She's down with it at first. I mean, she she even admits to loving the secret, you know? Like, I'm not even going to tell the 17-year-old Morris, you know? Seeing the date on the photo. Yeah, but I, I imagine she becomes less and less jaded over time. Before I figured out that approach. Morris? It's really you? Penny, I built a time machine. It took me years of work, but I did it. And now I'm back. I spread my hands. I want to tell you some things. I took a slip of paper from my pocket. These are the names of some... See, I so naturally wanted to be like, Hey, Penny, it's me, Morris from the future. You know, like... (laughs) But I had... (laughs) That would have been too obvious. I had to be like, Penny, it's me. So you're kind of conflicted about how to feel. And there's the soaring violins in the air and all that kind of stuff. Just... Don't well, if he just went back me, and was like, hey, here's some money, things. take care of yourself, you know, as like, he, there would be a case to be made, right? yeah. but he puts his hand on her knee, she did you know, like, now, he's getting his thing, he's essentially it. saying, hey, I'm going to make you rich, and aren't you grateful? <laughs> yeah, he, I guess technically he could leave the plans to the time machine for the 17-year-old him and advance the work even faster if he really gave a fuck about that guy, you know? Yeah, right, he could probably could manage it. Uh, he could leave a message. Um, but this no, I mean, it's about nostalgia. That's what the story is about, the poisonous nature the of nostalgia. Another country. Uh, Time, a garden of infinitely the past can have been wonderful. I could change you know, maybe the path, path was. But when Probably you're not remembering it right, but let's say it was amazing and perfect. Maybe you can think about it, and you can change. maybe even let it give you some guidance, right? Now, give you a star to follow to what you want your future to be like. But if you do nothing but live in the past, you neglect the present. You maybe even poison and destroy the present. I said, That's interesting, because it's kind of like the the anti-recency effect that you hear so much about now, and people are so reactive about the world and government because of the recency effect, but those who dwell in the past and bypass the recency effect have a different issue altogether. Well, and they they dwell on the past and they have an imagined version of the past, right? I mean, the whole nature of conservatism is to hearken back to an imaginary golden age. And it was only, to the extent that it was a golden age at all, it was only a golden age for some people. Wasn't a golden age for most people. There's not a minute in the past, really, that I would rather live in. Um, Even as bad as things are, things are better than they were for the bulk of human history. Yeah, and the bulk of humanity. Things have been eating us a lot less lately. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, people tend to walk around with tumors hanging off their faces less often. Um, I remain optimistic that overall we're going to continue going forward because we have been if you look at the trend lines there's that tim pratt that i love the, ever the optimist <laughs> i mean crime rates go down you know the technology seems to be getting cleaner right like this is not to discount or downplay how horrible things are for large portions of the population still this isn't to say don't worry about it you know the future doesn't just happen right you have to fight for it you have to win it but i have reasons to be cheerful looking back at history you know that this does not our current difficulties don't necessarily mark a permanent slide into chaos and horror um I think that we will dig ourselves back out again. But you got to get out there and dig. And you know, going back to Morris, he's not—he's not building the future, right? He's—he's uh, he's wallowing in the past. Absolutely. After, later, when I'd held her and smelled her hair and whispered promises to her about how good her life would be, I said I had to go. The machine will be calling me back soon. She propped herself up on one elbow, disarrayed and unselfconscious, and said, I don't think I'll tell you, the, the young you, my you, about this. He might not believe me, and anyway, it'll make a nicer surprise when he gets the time machine. Right. So he definitely wouldn't believe you? <laughs> Just, she made a good call there. I slept with this dude who was you from the future. (laughs) He was totally convincing. He drew these plans for a time machine on a napkin. He said, you're going to build this one day. I promise. (laughs) Maybe I'd given this Penny. Good job, Penny. With a good chance. I tried. Each time I tried. I couldn't kill Hitler in his cradle. Couldn't witness the crucifixion. Couldn't even corner the tulip market in the Netherlands in the 17th century. But I did what <laughs> You've I. You've always got uh, that uh, little like bit of biting humor I in there. If I succeeded, 
I like a good list. Iteration of yeah, past. list of three. Forever, and I never returned to the same place twice. I didn't know if there were an infinite number of possible pasts to visit or not. Maybe someday I'd find out. And honestly, whether this Penny and that Morris had a better life or not, at least I'd tasted remembered sweetness and learned yeah, once again that my yeah, nostalgia is not like, misplaced. Whether it works out or not, Penny I got laid. Really was the yeah. Love of my life. Yeah, I mean. Just the the sweeping the strings and stuff to me is I'm trying to recreate in my head what it's like in Morris's head, like how he's justifying this. Yes. He's the noble time traveler sitting time. on top of a rocky crevice as the sun goes down and he's swept back to his time. Well, whether or not it works out, at least I did all I could for humanity. It's my life is so hard, but their lives will be so much better. Yes. He's going back and having sex with his young wife. I mean, that's, you know, with the Some 17 year iteration of his young wife that I'm sure his future wife would be not cool with, but she doesn't get to know about it. Been interrupted, as and that's the thing, right? Like, uh, the, that Orson Scott card story, the guy who goes back to see his, convinced his wife has left him, but he sees her every night. To me, it was a guy who cheats on his wife with his wife, right? That's, that's the story. I feel like even if he didn't bang the 17-year-old version of his wife, he's still cheating on her to some degree because he's not, he's the lock, you know, he's leaving her out of all of this and he's, you know, emotionally not cheating on her in the physical sense, but certainly he's, uh, you know, he's given his heart to the past, as you mentioned, and, and that's to me degree, he's abandoned his wife altogether. The best is yet to... He would be a terrible husband regardless. Right. For me, what makes him a terrible person is that he goes back and gets laid and he does it over and over and over and he manipulates her and he knows exactly how because he's done it. We don't know how many times, but a lot of times. Right. I mean, Penny says he's locked down in that basement every night. Right. Yeah. And the machine is built. So what exactly is he working on down there? Yeah, he's doing, he's taking things off, putting things on, but nothing's changed. I think this is pretty much what he does. I feel like we're two, like, chicks getting drinks at a bar right now, like, nodding back and forth. Like, he's down in that basement every night. And what's he even work? Yeah, I know, girl. Something like that. Because it's true. And uh, isn't it interesting, Tim, that he happens to be able to go back in time uh, consistently to when the other him is 100 miles away visiting relatives? He, I, this might be an unreliable narrator situation, you know, where he might be not telling us the full truth and he maybe has a little more control than we thought. Yeah, I think uh, he's, he is an unreliable narrator in the sense that he's self-deluded, right? Like, he's convinced himself of this, you know, that he's doing the only thing he can do. But, you know, I think at some level, he just, he's, he's still futzing around with it, but he, he likes what he's doing, right? Like, it's his little secret thrill, right? He gets to have an affair that he can rationalize to himself as not being really an affair, and, oh gosh, I'm helping, uh-huh. right? I'm going to make their lives so much better than my life is. When all he needs to do, I mean, if he was not a terrible person, is actually work on his existing marriage, right? Yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, Penny has clearly put up with a lot of crap, right? Like, for a long time. And, yes, she's bitter, and she's not the wild, impulsive girl she once was, but married to him, how could she be? Absolutely. I've read through some of the comments from back in the day, and one of our fans, Swamp, put that in really articulated well form. Morris was so caught up, he says, in rediscovering what was lost that he couldn't realize that he was the one who was causing it to be lost. It is natural for us to look back and fantasize about how good things were in the past. However, when we were in the past, we dreamed about how good things would be in the future. And I love that, because that's time travel right there, you know? Yeah. closes by saying we tend to overlook our present and as another listener said that is what we are most responsible for and what we have the most control over so that was a great comment you know it's nice to find readers who get what you were doing like Mm -hmm. i'm a a firm believer that fiction is a collaboration right as a writer i can create something and i put whatever i try to put into it and then the reader gets something out of it and sometimes it's what i put in and sometimes it's not and one's not better than the other one's not right or wrong right um that said it is a thrill when the thing that you intended is picked up by somebody right when somebody gets the thing that you did it's very satisfying i mean if people find other things to like in the story that i didn't mean to put in or that 
you know, wasn't my intention, it still has value and it's not a wrong reading, right? The story is its own thing. It's out there. Um, and the story that it becomes in the mind of a reader is a, is a separate work of art in some ways. But yeah, it is nice when you, when you read something and are like, yes, that's it. That's what I was doing. Another really good one that I think will make you tingle was uh, from listener Moon Owl. She said, I think this is less about time travel um, and more about longing for youth, vigor, and feeling of new romance compared to long-term relationships, which seem to be about paying bills, doing taxes, and who's going to shovel the 20 feet of snow this time. I've been hitched for a while and we're happy, but your spouse is never quite the fresh-faced teen that you first fell for. In truth, neither are you. It's not a bad thing growing old together, but who wouldn't want to take a trip back? So there's a little bit of a devil's advocate argument there. Well, I think anybody can can get Morris's impulse, right? And, yeah. uh, you know, it would even be defensible somewhat if he was going back and indulging. I still think it's creepy, but it could maybe be defensible if he was also, like, working on his present. But he's not. You know, he just chooses to entirely live in the past, um, which is what makes it indefensible for me. Yeah. It becomes less about the time traveling that started with and becomes more about the obsessive compulsive disorder, which is what it really is. You know, that, that brings up a point, which to me is a little, little sensitive because when I was reading this story and, and, and putting this story out, um, I, I, f- I felt like I really related to Morris in a lot of the bad ways because, uh, believe it or not, the girl that was the co-reader was my girlfriend at the time. And this is exactly what we were struggling with. And the machine was oh, travel yeah. cast, you know? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I'm sure, surely, Tim, you've been in a headspace before with writing when a novel deadline's coming up or something. And, like, you get myopic, you know? Like, you, you start to have your basement and your locks and you push people out and you, you forget what your priorities are. And, you know, ultimately it didn't work out with this girl, <laughs> which is super ironic, and we're still friends and everything, but it's 100% because I was doing Morris-type stuff, not time-traveling or banging anybody, but certainly over-prioritizing uh, other things. But have you ever experienced something like that? Maybe there's a little bit of that you drew from your life into the story. So there was a period in my 20s when I dabbled with the possibility of becoming an art monster, um, <laughs> by which I mean uh, all of those writers and right the artists who make art the central thing in their life and everything else must be sacrificed to it. Mm-hmm. Your children, your friends, your family, they all come second to your art. And you know, there's a, there's a, there's a certain appeal to that, right? Uh, to one's ego and one's narcissism. Mm-hmm. But what I decided a long time ago was that art is very important to me, but it is not the only important thing to me. And that if I wrote amazing, wonderful things and had no good friends and disappointed my family and made my kid hate me, it wouldn't be worthwhile. Um, So yes, certainly. And I am upfront with people and I let them know that if I'm going deep into a book, I might be a little bit absent, but I make a point of coming back out, right? And I make a point of maintaining connections. Oh. And honestly, I married a writer. Um, part so of she the gets it. <laughs> right. Somebody who understands. And actually, she says that it's better uh, when I am working. If I am in between projects, she says I get weird and squirrely and cranky. You know, it's better if I have something that I can... <laughs> that I can my mental energy on even if it does i do occasionally vanish and you know and i made a conscious decision to prioritize certain things in my life you know especially after my kid was born i was like i don't want to spend all my weekends just writing so you know i make a point of doing stuff with him you know every weekend and um i arrange my life you know i have a day job at locust but i work four days a week so i have a day off and on that day off is when i do the lion's share of my work if i'm on a deadline i you know i work more um but for the most part, I tried to not become an art monster. And Morris is a science monster. Yeah, what, is, what does Heather, your wife, think about this story? Does she have any thoughts when she first heard it or listened to it or read it? Yeah, I mean, it came out you know, a long time ago. Right. Um, and I don't really remember. I don't remember it being one of the stories that we had an argument about where she thought I was secretly writing about our relationship. I think it was pretty clearly not <laughs> anything. So. But yeah, I mean, it's... Huh, it's interesting because I never really thought about that, um, about his obsession being uh, 
comparable to an artistic obsession, right? Someone's novel could be their machine that they're constantly in the basement working on. And it's not that the machine doesn't have value. You just have to have balance in your life. Stephen King wrote uh, his great book about writing on writing. He talked oh, about I how love he had- that. Oh, I couldn't yeah. recommend that enough. It's fantastic. He's got that great thing about how he had this giant desk in the middle of his room, right? And like his writing was the the all-encompassing thing and then you know after he had some health scares and he you know had addiction stuff and all that he he got his sense of proportion and perspective back and put a little desk in the corner right like mm-hmm. he still writes it's still important but it's not the central thing about around which his entire life must resolve and you know maybe my books would be better if i was an art monster but you know i'd just rather not have that and if it means i write a few fewer books yeah i'm okay with that trade-off Absolutely. Well, I mean, you're talking to somebody who's restarting his podcast after fading for about a year here, and this is part of that launch and, you know, going into this full-time head-on because the balancing of priorities. That's what I guess subconsciously that's one of the reasons I picked this story because it, it meant a lot to me because of that. It's not about time travel for me or losing what you had in the past. It's more like losing perspective, you know, and getting really entrenched in a headspace that is not uh, healthy in any sort of way and shutting out what is healthy reality, like right in front of you and stuff. And uh, because right. of that, so I think that's something I gleaned from it that I enjoyed. It's very easy to get caught up in the quotidian and the everyday struggles and just dealing with the stuff that's right in front of you. And you have to deal with that stuff. The danger is that you lose sight of your larger purpose. And one of the enduring themes in my work is that it's helpful for people if they have a, have a purpose, right? It's good if you have meaning in your life. You have to create your own meaning. There's not any inherent meaning. You can take an off-the-shelf meaning that somebody else gives to you, but it probably won't make you happy. It's better if you can figure out your own thing, Um And, you know, I tell my kid this, that, you know, try a lot of things in your life, right? Experiment with different approaches to life and art and skills and activities and figure out what speaks to you and just try to decide for yourself what's important, what matters to you. Um, And once you know that thing, once you know what you want to orient your life around, be it service or art or love or whatever, it makes making decisions a whole lot easier, right? You just ask yourself, does this further my goal or not? That's got to be the best parenting advice ever because it's not just inconvenient if you don't have meaning. It's catastrophic. It's You can't survive, as H.P. Lovecraft would let us all know. Like We are meaningless entities. We need to create some sort of reason for us to endure the senselessness you know, and to build and to be happy and all this stuff. And I don't know. If I ever have a kid, I'm going to basically listen to this episode and try and memorize word for word what you just said because it's very good advice. I was going to ask you one more question. You kind of alluded a little bit earlier to not wanting to go back. But if Tim Pratt had a time machine and he could go backwards or forwards to any time, where would you spin the dial and hope you landed dinosaurs or in the future, you know, uh, back or forward. Yeah. You can go anywhere. I mean, you you only get one shot. I, you know, at the risk of sounding horrendously sentimental, I would go forward and see if things turned out all right for my kid. You know, oh Tim, um, you are such a romance. I'm always about, I'm about the human story. You know, I'm the about the personal story, story and that's, no, that's, that's great. my chief concern for the future: is will there be a future for my kid? <laughs> you know? Any parents out there listening right now, when some asshole asks you that question, that's the answer you give, right? <laughs> that's the way to do it. You know, he's so uh, he's this person who I'm resp- I'm partly responsible for him existing in the world, right? So. Mm-hmm. I just want to see, you know? And then if it's not good, I hope it's Wellesley in time travel and I can go back and set things up a little better, you know? I think that's a given. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was talking to Steve Ely the other day, and he was like, have you read Scientific Romance, the poem that... uh, that Tim wrote, and I was like, no, I haven't. I thought I read most of his stuff, uh, except for all these new Marla Mason novels he's cranking on a Kickstarter, <laughs> apparently. But he's like, you got to read it, dude. It is the best. And I was like, okay, well, read it for me. And he found it and pulled it up, and I was like, I've got to see if I can get him to read that on the on the podcast we're putting up, because it's got uh, you know all sorts of tie-in, but it's it can end things on a positive note. <laughs> so would you mind reading Scientific Romance? I think our listeners would just love hearing. This is one of the best poems I've I've read or heard in a long time, and and of course Tim Pratt is responsible for it. Uh, so this piece called Scientific Romance. I wrote it uh, as a Valentine's Day gift for my wife back in 2010. Uh, as a result, I doomed my future because I'll never come up with a better Valentine's Day gift than this. <laughs> uh, so this is Scientific Romance. 
If starship travel from our Earth to some far star and back again, at velocities approaching the speed of light, made you younger than me due to the relativistic effects of time dilation, I'd show up on your doorstep hoping you'd developed a thing for older men, and I'd ask you to show me everything you learned to pass the time out there in the endless void of night. If we were the sole survivors of a zombie apocalypse and you were bitten and transformed into a walking corpse, I wouldn't even pick up my assault shotgun. I'd just let you take a bite out of me, because I'd rather be undead forever with you than alive alone without you. If I were a time machine, I'd go back to the days of your youth to see how you became the someone I love so much today. And then I'd return to the moment we first met, just so I could see my own face when I saw your face for the first time. And okay, I'd probably travel to the time when we were a young couple and try to get a three-way going. I never understood why more time travelers don't do that sort of thing. If the alien invaders come and hover in stern judgment over our cities, trying to decide whether to invite us to the Galactic Federation of Confederated Galaxies, or if instead a little genocide is called for, I think our love could be a powerful argument for the continued preservation of humanity in general, or at least of you and me in particular. If we were captives together in an alien zoo, I'd try to make the best of it, cultivate a streak of xeno-exhibitionism, waggle my eyebrows, and make jokes about breeding and captivity. If I became lost in the multiverse, exploring infinite parallel dimensions, my only criterion for settling down somewhere would be whether or not I could find you. And once I did, I'd stay there, even if it was a world ruled by giant spider priests, or one where killer robots won the Civil War, or even a world where sandwiches were never invented, because you'd make it the best of all possible worlds anyway, and plus we could get rich off inventing sandwiches. If the singularity comes and we upload our minds into a vast computer simulation of near-infinite complexity and perfect resolution, and become capable of experiencing any fantasy, exploring worlds bound only by our enhanced imaginations, I'd still spend at least 10 to the 21 processing cycles a month just sitting on a virtual couch with you, watching virtual TV, eating virtual fajitas, holding virtual hands, and wishing for the real thing. Ah... Just fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Tim, for reading that. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, remind so, us again when we can uh, buy your, your space opera. And Amazon.com, I guess, is the best place to go. Yeah, they certainly have it. Um, the first book is called The Wrong Stars. Uh, it should be available all over the place now from Angry Robot. And book two, The Dreaming Stars, is out in September. That's awesome. And then book three is out next year sometime? Yep, Forbidden Stars, probably fall yeah, of 2019. Cool, looking forward to that. Well, thanks, Tim, so much for spending time with us here and uh, talking about the story. This has been really great getting to know you and getting to know your thoughts behind the, the tale here. Um, I'm going to try and make your barbecue, by the way, out there. And Is it the end of your Oh, awesome, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a couple weekends. Yeah, the 22nd. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'd love to make it out there and hang out. All right. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Tim. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah, take care.